Good morning. My name is Jeff Wilkins, and uh, I have the joy of bringing the word to you this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets, maybe around the middle of your Bible. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Just dig around, find it. If you don't have your text, if you don't have your Bible with you, we have it printed in the bulletin, and we also have pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take a pew Bible home with you. We would love nothing more than to have to replace all the pew Bibles every week because people are showing up who don't have Bibles. Um, so there you have it. To frame our time together, uh, I've been thinking a lot about the world in which we live, especially during this particular season. Um, I don't think I'm stating anything that nobody doesn't already know, but we live in a very, very polarized world. We live in an us versus them world. There are Christians and there are non-Christians. There are straight people and there are gay people. There are Republicans and there are Democrats. There are liberals and there are conservatives. There are anti-vaxxers and there are pro-vaxxers. There are pro-choicers and pro-lifers. There are MAGA hat wearers and there are Black Lives Matter protesters. There are patriots and there are terrorists. There are citizens and there are immigrants, and we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? We live in a very polarized world. A number of years ago, I read a book by Don Carson called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And in this book, Carson makes the argument that there was a time when two people who think different things believe different things, live different ways, could actually sit down together and talk. They could debate. They could try to persuade the other person that they were wrong and I'm right. And at the very least, if at the end of the conversation they couldn't come to agreement, they could at least agree about that. And then they would order another round. But today, that doesn't happen very often. In fact, for many people, when we disagree, it puts a tremendous strain on our relationships. And at worst, that relationship comes to an end. Just think about how different people have responded differently to the COVID crisis. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just illustrating the point. You probably saw a news story a couple of months ago about the school board meeting in Franklin, Tennessee, where two groups of parents practically came to blows over a disagreement regarding mask implementation in the elementary school. There are actually videos that you can find on YouTube where, where you can see parents heckling one another with one man telling the driver of a vehicle, we know who you are. You can leave freely, but we know where you live. Again, I'm not trying to make a political statement. 
Rather, I'm just illustrating the fact that we live in an ever-increasing polarized world where if we disagree, not only can't we be friends, but if we disagree, you are my enemy. And this goes for whatever side of the divide you find yourself on. We live in a very us versus them world. Now, why, why do I tell you that? It's because that world, that us versus them world, that polarized world doesn't end when we walk through the doors of the church. If we're really honest, every single one of us, every single one of us, including myself, we have our others. People that we wish would just go away, that we wish would just disappear, that we wish would just shut up. How can you know who your others are? The Apostle James gives us a couple of great diagnostic tests to help us identify our others. In chapter two, James says, show no favoritism. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must show, not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then in chapter three, James says that we're to consider the words that come out of our mouths. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. What's the point? Both favoritism and the words of our mouths reveal who our others are. So here are a couple of questions for you to think about. Who are your favorites? And perhaps more importantly, who aren't your favorites? Why aren't they your favorites? And who are you talking about? What, what are you saying? Are you singing their praises? Or are you throwing them under the bus? Now, why does this matter? The Croatian scholar, Pastor Miroslav Volf wrote this great book called Exclusion and Embrace. And in it, he says this. He says, it is very easy to exclude the other from the community of humans and at the same time exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. I'm going to say that one more time. It is very easy to exclude the other from the community of humans and at the same time exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. Isn't that the feel of our age? We live in a very polarized world. We live in a very us versus them world. But we're not the first. We have Jonah. 
Jonah is all about us versus them and the grace of God. It's a sucker punch in a sense, but it is a sucker punch of grace. It's a, it's a Jewish tradition that on the Day of Atonement, the day of Yom Kippur, Jews all over the world read in one sitting the book of Jonah. And do you know what they say when they conclude the reading of the book of Jonah? They say, I am Jonah. My prayer is that we would think about these words. That we would hear God's message to us this morning. And that we would be willing to confess to one another, I am Jonah. So, let's read Jonah chapter 1 and then we'll take a few minutes and look at it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, there is nothing more we need this morning than to hear you speak to us. As we read these words, we sense we're going to get it. And there's a sense in which we are. But my prayer, Lord, is not only would we be convicted of our sin, but Lord, we would see your grace, your mercy, your kindness that pursues us even in the storms of our lives that we bring upon ourselves and upon others. Speak to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Allow us to taste and see that you are good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, in verse one, the Lord, it's Yahweh, it's, it's Israel's personal name, for God, the per, their personal covenant God, comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And how does Jonah respond? We all know the story. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. Now, you probably already know this, but you don't have to get in a boat to go from Israel to Nineveh because it's all land. It's about 800, 700, 800 miles by land to the east to go from Israel to Nineveh. Nineveh is is located in what we know today as Mosul, Iraq. But Tarshish? Tarshish is in the exact opposite direction. It's to the west. Nineveh is to the east. Nineveh, most scholars believe, was on what was then considered the far edge of the earth. Southern Spain, leading out into the Atlantic Ocean, which was unknown, unexplored. Now this raises two questions, doesn't it? Why would Jonah do the exact opposite of what the Lord commanded him to do? And why would the Lord command Jonah to go to Nineveh in the first place? In order to answer those two questions, we actually need to ask a third question, and that's what, what is it, what, what do we know about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. For more than a century, the Assyrian Empire had been the superpower of the ancient Near East. And over those years, Assyria had gained a reputation of a brutal, merciless superpower. Now, I mentioned just a second ago that, that um, Nineveh is right outside of what is today modern-day Mosul. I had never heard of Mosul until ISIS came on the scene a number of years ago. I think it's fair to say that ISIS was cut from the same cloth as Assyria, as Nineveh. You remember the beheadings 
that we heard about on the news a number of years ago. You remember the, 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 the people being burned in cages. That's the same kind of cruelty and violence for which the Assyrian Empire was known. What's more, for almost a hundred years, like the modern-day mob, Assyria had been requiring that Israel pay them tribute. It was protection money. You pay or you'll pay. And in fact, in 722, around 30 years after Jonah's call to go to Nineveh, the armies of the Assyrian Empire descended upon Israel and did that exact thing. They destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. All to say, Assyria and Nineveh is the personification of evil. And here's the thing. God knows it. What does God command Jonah to do? He says in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their what? For their evil has come up before me. God knows that Nineveh is evil. And And he commands Jonah to go to Nineveh and to call them out. In other words, preach God's coming judgment upon them. Why? Why would Jonah do the exact opposite of what the Lord commanded him to do? Well, let's think about that second question. Why why would God command Jonah to go to Nineveh in the first place? Because the answer to that second question, I think, will help us understand and answer that first question. When, When God created the heavens and the earth, he created man and woman, to live in perfect communion with each other and in perfect communion with him. Of course, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that perfect communion was completely shattered. But before God expels them from the Garden of Eden, he makes them a promise, essentially saying, I am going to repair what you have broken. Genesis 3.16, to the serpent, who tempted Adam and Eve, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 4 through 11, we see the world swirling down into sin, into the cancerous consequences of sin. And we are left asking the question, how is God going to keep his promise? Then we come to Genesis 12. And we see God coming to a man by the name of Abram, who he will later rename Abraham, and giving him this call. He says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So begins the fulfillment of God's promise that he first announced to Adam and Eve. Now, what I want to point out to you is that this is, first and foremost, God's work. Scholars call this the mission 
of God. It's not the mission of man. It's not the mission of woman. It's the mission of God. And, and what's absolutely astounding about the mission of God is that God states in no under uncertain terms that he's going to accomplish his mission through Abraham and his descendants. Fast forward something like 400 years And the Lord has just rescued the Israelites from 400 years of slavery and the threat of genocide in Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments and the blueprints for the tabernacle. But before he does that, he tells Moses to tell Israel this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. In other words, the Israelites are to function as priests For the nations, speaking God's word to the nations and speaking to God on behalf of the nations. And then 40 years later, we come to Deuteronomy 4. Moses is preaching his swan song sermon before the Israelites enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And Moses says this. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God has commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this nation is wise, is a wise and understanding people. In other words, the Israelites are supposed to obey God's commandments as a way of wooing the nations, drawing the nations to the Lord. Their obedience is a condition for them to fulfill their role in the mission of God. Now, why do I tell you all of this? It's because it reminds us that after God created the world and human rebellion marred it, God set out to restore all that he had made. It's because it reminds us that God's plan of redemption has always been global in scope. It's because it reminds us that although God is tied to Israel, they are his special, his treasured possession. His purpose in making them his treasured possession is to bring blessing to all the families of the earth through them. This is why the Lord commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. And this helps us to answer that first question, why Jonah would do the exact opposite of what the Lord commanded him to do. Jonah knew that there would be no reason for God to send him to Nineveh to preach the impending threat of God's judgment on them unless there was a chance that the people of Nineveh might repent and that this judgment, the judgment of God, might be averted And this is the absolute last thing Jonah wanted. Or really any Israelite in Jonah's day wanted. Jonah's worry was not that the Ninevites might not repent. His worry was that the Ninevites would repent. Beloved, this is why God sends Jonah to Nineveh. 
And this is why Jonah does the exact opposite of what God commands him to do. Now, how does any of this connect to you and to me? Beloved, when God calls us to himself, he calls us into his mission, into his continuing mission. He sends us out into the world to be what? To be salt and light. He doesn't send us to Nineveh. He sends us out into the everyday of our ordinary lives. And he says what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount to all of those who look to him in faith. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. But that's not all that Jesus says, is it? Because if you go down a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is the heart of God for his world, and Jonah knows it. God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In fact, This is why in chapter 4, Jonah says he made haste to flee to Tarshish. He can't stand the thought that God could be so gracious and so loving and so merciful and so forgiving that the Ninevites might repent of their sins and be saved. In light of this, here are a few questions we should probably wrestle with. Who Who are your enemies? Or, as I asked earlier, who are your others? In the words of Miroslav Volf, who are you excluding from the community of humans? Do you love them? Really? Do you pray for them? Really? Are you living like sons of your father, In heaven, or as James put it, are you cursing those made in God's likeness? If you're like me, this is deeply convicting. And I wonder. How, how, how could I ever come to a place where I love and pray for people that not only do I not really have any hope for, I don't really want to have hope for them. I would suggest to you that the only way we will ever be able to do anything that the Lord asks us is when we see two things about ourselves. The first is this, that like the Apostle Paul, each of us can say, I am the foremost of sinners. Or in the words of Jesus, you might have a speck in your eye, but I've got a log in mine. That for every one thing that you do wrong, I do 10 things wrong in response. You Maybe you sin against me, but I judge you in my heart. I feel superior to you. 
I harbor resentment against you. I confess your sin to others and I give you the silent treatment or I lash out at you in anger. In this, what we see in our passage, I'm, I'm, I'm no better than you. In fact, it, to be perfectly honest, I'm worse than you. That's what we see in our passage. Picking up in verse 4, we read, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Friend, these, these are seasoned sailors. They've done this before. This isn't the first, their, their first dance. They've, they've gone through storms. But this storm, there's something different about it, and they are terrified. And what's the first thing they do? Then the mariners were afraid and they cried out to their gods. Yes, yes, these guys are idolaters. They're not crying out to the Lord, not yet. But at least they pray. At least they turn to, to, to gods. Even if it's a god of their imagination, they turn to God and they cry out to their gods. But what does Jonah do? Absolutely Nothing. Verse 5, Jonah has gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do, you, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. Folks, Jonah is a prophet of Yahweh. This isn't the first time the Lord has spoken to Jonah. This isn't the first time the Lord has given Jonah his word. And yet, in our passage, Jonah never prays. Instead, he sleeps. In verse 7, the sailors say to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon you. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And, where, and, what people, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Folks, what Jonah says here about the Lord is absolutely true. He made all things and he rules over all things. But Jonah's statement, I fear the Lord, is absolutely laughable. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And yet Jonah is defiantly disobeying the direct commandment of the Lord. And he knows it. In verse 10, we learn that he has told the sailors as much. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. But as we see in verse 14, the sailors are deeply concerned that if they obey Jonah and throw him overboard, the Lord might find them guilty of murder. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. And in verse 16 we are told that the men, the sailors, these idolaters, 
They've changed teams. They fear the Lord exceedingly, and they offer sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. In other words, the sailors truly feared the Lord, but Jonah, the fear he mentions is clearly nothing more than lip service. Again, think about the contrast between the sailors and Jonah. Lastly, Jonah's disobedience has put everyone on the ship at risk. And again, he does absolutely nothing. As the sailors throw, as the sailors throw all of their cargo <coughs> overboard, sacrificing any hope of making a profit, Jonah does nothing. And even after Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for I know that this is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The sailors do everything in their power not to have to throw Jonah overboard. In verse 13, we read, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. In other words, Jonah has put everyone on the ship's life at risk. And he does nothing to save their lives. But the sailors do anything and everything they can to try to save not only their own lives, but everyone else on that boat, including Jonah, who has put them in this position. In this comparison contrast between the sailors and Jonah, Jonah is found wanting in Every category. Now, maybe you think, well, what about what Jonah says in verse 12 when he says, hey, um, throw me overboard and the sea will quiet down for you. That sounds, that sounds pretty altruistic. That sounds, isn't this a sign of repentance? I would tell you, no, it's not a sign of repentance. And here's why I think that. At any time during this terrifying storm, Jonah could have prayed to the Lord and confessed, Lord, I have sinned against you. I've disobeyed your command to go to Nineveh. Forgive me and please spare the lives of these men. But that's not what Jonah does, is it? In fact, there's absolutely nothing that Jonah does in this story that demonstrates repentance on his part. Rather, his instructions that they throw him overboard suggests that he would rather die than do what the Lord has commanded. He would rather die than go to Nineveh and preach God's impending judgment. He would rather die than let the Ninevites be saved. Now, why do I point this out to you? It's because it illustrates the point Jonah was no better than any one of those sailors on the ship that day. In fact, he was worse. Given what he knows when he gets on the boat, I mean, he's a Hebrew. He's been raised in the church. He's a prophet. He has heard the word of the Lord. To use the verbiage of the shorter catechism, Jonah's sin is more heinous than the sins of the sailors. It is more heinous, I would suggest to you, than even the sins of the Ninevites. 
And if, if Jonah really understood this about himself, how would he have responded to God's command? What this means for you and what this means for me is that, is that if we have any hope of ever loving our others, ever praying for, for people who, who say hurtful things or do hurtful things to you, we need to be able to confess from our hearts that each of us is Jonah, that each of us is the cheapest of sinners. But here's the thing, that alone won't do it. Actually, if all we can say is, I am the foremost sinner, we will be crushed. But the good news of the gospel is what we see in verse 17. After the sailors reluctantly throw Jonah into the sea, and after the sea ceases raging, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this one verse is why people want to dismiss this passage, dismiss this book. This is just a fairy tale. Um, maybe not. We, we live in a demystified world. We live in a world that refuses to believe in miracles. We, re, we live in a world that refuses to believe in anything that's not material. But here's the thing. If you are a Christian, you believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If God could do that, then preserving Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, it really isn't that big of a deal. Of course, God can keep Jonah alive. He's God. But that's beside the point. What we have to see here is that in spite of his rebellion, in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his defiance, in spite of his sin, God rescues Jonah. In other words, God not only has grace for outsiders, the sailors. God not only has grace for the other, the Ninevites, but God has grace for the insider, for Jonah. And God has grace for you and me who, like Jonah, know what we're called to do. But every time we sin, we refuse to do it. Jonah isn't the one who saved the folks on the boat that day. But one, but the one, but what happened to Jonah points to the one who did. Centuries after Jonah came and went, one greater than Jonah, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, responded to his father's call, arise and go. And he walked into everything that Nineveh represents, life in a fallen world, life characterized by violence and brutality, life characterized by rebellion and sin. And wherever he went, he didn't bring storms. He brought the blue skies of God's blessing, the blessing first promised by God to Abram more than a millennia earlier. The cost on the cross, Jesus was thrown into the storm of God's righteous wrath, but he wasn't swallowed by a great fish. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us, 
for our sakes, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wasn't rescued. He died. You see, it's only when we realize that like Jonah, we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves But that God in the person of Jesus has saved us despite our sin at the infinite cost to himself. Will we be able to say, rather will we be compelled to say with the Apostle Paul, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. That if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us or their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We are the ambassadors for Christ. Do you hear the good news, beloved? I am Jonah. Are you? Do you hear God's call? I am Jonah. Are you? Yes, we have shown favoritism. Yes, we are oftentimes resentful and condescending to others, but God has made us new creations. Yes, we have run away like Jonah. But God has made us his ambassadors. God has grace for the insiders. God has grace for the outsiders. And the question we must all answer today is how will you respond to God's grace? How will you respond to God's call? Let's, let's, let's pray. Father, in some ways, in lots of ways, these words, these words are really hard. They're convicting. They expose the fact that we love people, but really we, we only love people that are like us. People who think differently than us or live differently than us. Oftentimes we're, we're just dismissive. We're unconcerned. We look at them and we, we don't consider them men and women created in the image of God who will live forever, either in your presence or in the torments of hell, Father. But we we look at them as disposable. God, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Change us. Would you convict us of our sins this morning? And would you convict us of your grace? that your grace is sufficient for us in all of our weakness, that, that you have taken our sins and in Christ you have separated them so far from us as the east is from the west, that you have thrown them into the sea 
and you will never dredge them up again. Lord, would that truth, would you change our hearts? Would we be overwhelmed by the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love for us that you would live and die for us? What's amazing is not that you might save them, but it's amazing is that you save us. Burn that truth into our hearts and use it to compel us forward that we might be your ambassadors. Speak to us and through us as we speak to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our classmates. Help us to love them as you have loved us. Help us to pray for them as even right now, Lord Jesus, you and your spirit are praying for us. God, have mercy on us. Thank you that when you call us into your presence, you do convict us of our sin, but you also convict us of, our, of your grace. Thank you for this table that we're about to, to come to. Thank you for this bread and this wine. And Father, I pray that you would convince us, that you would persuade us, that your promises to us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you love us with a love that will never let us go, that your grace is sufficient for us in our weakness, that you've taken our sins and you've thrown them into the sea. I pray that, that those promises would be as real to us this morning as this bread and this wine. Use this bread and this wine to convince us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.